Acts chapter 11. We're gonna be looking at verses 19 through 30. And then we are going to jump over to chapter 13, not because we don't care about chapter 12, uh, just the first part of 13 picks up with the end of chapter 11. So uh, hear the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so Stephen was stoned in chapter seven, everybody fled, all right? Uh, They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And you remember Barnabas, he sold a field for a bunch of money. They uh, gave him the nickname Son of Encouragement. Um, So here Barnabas is coming up again, doing his thing. Right When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all. He encouraged them to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there will be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Now to chapter 13, what's happening in the church? Now, they were growing, all kinds of good stuff was happening. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, so multitudes of teachers and prophets. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, Ted Giannalis, Ted Giannalis, does that ring a name for anybody in here? Seeing none, if you do know it, I'm very impressed, but let me see if I can uh, give you some more details about Ted's life and see if y'all can figure out, really, if y'all figure, whoever figures this out first, I'll give you a gift after the service, all right? Ted's been all over the television since the 1980s. He's been in commercials for Sony, uh, McDonald's. He had his own Saturday morning television show that ran for five seasons. And y'all know Saturday morning cartoons, that's a big deal, right? He's been featured, now this is gonna age y'all a little bit. He was featured in Ronald Reagan's presidential campaign in 1988. Ted was voted one of the 100 most influential persons in sports history in the 20th century. Is that ringing a bell for anybody? Do y'all know who Ted is, old Teddy? Still don't know? Check out a picture, maybe that'll jog your memory. We see Ted, this is Ted. Ted spent the last 30 years of his life as the mascot for the San Diego Padres. He was a San Diego Padres chicken. And since he started wearing the suit as an intern at 20 years old, uh, he kind of grew into the role of this character and this chicken ended up becoming kind of a secondary or primary identity for him. At first, Ted really loved this alter ego. Uh, He said he would put on the suit, he would have this Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde experience to where he would put the suit on and he would just become someone else. He would have so much fun and he would have a blast. 
One writer about Ted's life said that if you aren't careful, you can lose yourself in the suit. You can lose yourself in the suit. Ted uh, would agree with that. He said this, he said, I've got plenty of chicken stories, but I don't have any Ted stories. You see, from 20 to the age of 50, this has been his primary identity. Nobody knows what Ted looks like. If he was in here today, we wouldn't know him, but we would know the chicken suit from the San Diego Padres. He's lived his entire life alone. He's lived his entire life uh, with no family, by himself. Outwardly, he's this fun character with all this awesome resume of all the fun things he's ever done. But whenever it's time to hang up the chicken suit at 50, I'm 36, I could imagine jumping on top of dugouts and saying hi to a bunch of people. You kinda just kinda wanna get away from people the older you get. Not Ted, though. But think about when he takes that suit off, though. Who's the real Ted? Who's the real identity? Who does he have to spend life with? It's kinda sad, actually. But likewise, if we aren't careful as a church, we can end up in the same place. We can show up and see church as an entertainment venue to be entertained by someone like me and Keith and Parker and, and our ministry leaders and go to entertain each other with putting on suits of salvation and not having any sort of uh, relationship with the Savior. You see, churches exist all over the country, all over the world, where outwardly they appear very religious. They're doing the right things. They are uh, doing the right ministries. Everything looks like a church on the outside, but inside, they are far from the Lord. There's no stories of salvation. There's no stories of growth. There's no stories of healing. There's no stories of relationships being changed for the glory of Jesus. And do I think East is at that place? No, I would not be here if I thought East was at this place. I've spent my entire career up to the last two and a half years ministering in churches like this, revitalizing them, helping them to see the gospel, and I'm here because they only want to revitalize to a certain point. Then you get kind of the boot. Well, anyway, I'm here. Do I think East is at this place? Absolutely not. But here's the encouragement for 2022. No church sets out to be like this. No church forms and says, hey, you know what? We're going to give this three to five years, then we're going to re-up in three to five years to see if we want to continue doing this. It's kind of like marriage. Nobody gets married and says, you know what? At the altar, this vow is only good for six years, then we're gonna re-up in six years and see how we're doing. No church, no marriage desires to go to divorce. No church desires to be this entertainment uh, entity. No church aims to just close their door and just be another social function for people to go to, but it happens all the time. It happens all the time. How do we prevent this? East has been around for 11 years. We've planted multiple churches. We've got this beautiful, uh, uh, very tangible experience of God's hand in our lives. We're active, our community groups are growing, but how do we stay the course? How do we not grow into a church of inspiration junkies that just want to hear cool quotes from our pastor that they can tweet? How do we become a church that continues to stay grounded and centered in Christ? Two ways, knowing Jesus and sharing Jesus. Knowing Jesus and sharing Jesus. We see that a Christ-centered church must know Jesus from verses 20 and 21. Look with me there. 
But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So what's, what's taking place here? Well, like I said, in Acts chapter seven, Stephen was stoned and people scattered. Some of these Christians landed in Antioch, which is about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. So they really got out of Dodge. They bounced 300 miles. They were out of there. All right, and as they were uh, coming to Antioch, they found themselves in a very metropolitan city. So Antioch, during the time of this writing, was a metropolitan powerhouse, very similar to New York, LA, Chicago, Boston, uh, big metropolitan cities, tons of business, ton of economy, bunch of cultures, ethnicities, belief systems all over the place. It was a cultural melting pot. And in the middle of this diverse city that was very wild also, uh, uh, we have kids in here. I wouldn't even share the stories of what took place in Antioch. Uh, because they would make you blush. It was a very wild city. It was known, very known for its debauchery, similar to Vegas. Uh, Antioch made Vegas look like the villages down in South Florida. Uh, Antioch was very wild. In the middle of all this, though, look what's taking place. This church is booming. There are tons and tons and tons of people coming to the knowledge of the Lord, and it makes us ask, what in the world were they doing? What, what, what program, what manual, what strategies were they following? How can we replicate this in 2021? What's the secret, or 2022, what's the secret sauce? What were they doing? Verse 21 gives us the answer. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean some giant hand pointing out people in their lives that they should share the gospel with? No, that's not that at all. It means uh, the hand of the Lord is a phrase that means the Holy Spirit, God's favor was with them. God's Holy Spirit was empowering them. God was with them. He was giving them grace and mercy. He was with their efforts, empowering them and emboldening them. He was the strength and the power behind everything that they were doing. They were opening the scriptures in their homes. There was not a building the church isn't a building, y'all. It's us, it's people. And they didn't have any massive building for them to meet in. If they did, that was easy persecution. They were meeting in people's homes. They were sharing the word together. They were with trained teachers sitting around the word in their homes and they were sharing the gospel. They were sharing Jesus and the news about what he's accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection to everyone they were around. Everyone they came around, they were light and life to those around them. Not in an obnoxious way. You see, the church was growing in sweetness. It wasn't obnoxious, those people that hold signs and nail at you. No, they were with people, loving them well, right where they were in their jobs, right where Jesus had them. This was biblical evangelism, 101. This is evangelism. There's no program, no policy, no manual, no right instruction or right way to do it. They just loved Jesus and they shared Jesus with their words, with their lives, right where God had them. They were growing so much that the Jerusalem church heard about it and sent Barnabas, the son of encouragement, to go and continue to encourage them in their faith. But notice that their evangelism, notice that their evangelism didn't just stay 
surface level life, death, resurrection. And they didn't just share Jesus with people and say, all right, go on, glad I shared that with you. Let me go check the box on someone else. Let me go get some more numbers up. Let me go really get my quota for evangelism sharing today. That was not the case. They were sharing Jesus with folks and when they would uh, respond positively, they brought them into the church. They brought them in with other believers. They opened up the scriptures and they dove deep with them. They were making disciples. They were making followers. They were making followers. Look at verse 25 and 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church. So they met as a group. And then they taught a great many people. And they didn't have the full New Testament canon at this point. They were digging in the Old Testament. They were Old Testament believers. We should be the same, right? And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So what's happening is large numbers of people were coming to faith in Jesus. Barnabas knew he needed help. So he went and got Saul to help grow this church, not numerically because it was already huge, but to grow it in maturity. Now notice Barnabas could have created a little Barnabas kingdom. He could have created this little mini kingdom where Barnabas is the king ruling over everybody's lives, but he knew his gifts were encouragement. They weren't teaching discipleship, so he got help. He shared the load. We are not meant to do this on our own. So you see that they were teaching the Bible to non-believers. That's evangelism. They were brought in and taught the word inside of people's homes to mature them in the faith. This is a Christ-centered church. They were seeking God in his word. They were seeking to know Jesus and their identity and their lives that revolved around the person and work of Jesus. Everything that they did was colored by Jesus. These people, they walked and talked and smelled and interacted so much so like Jesus that for the first time in uh, history, we hear that they were called Christians. So if you think back all throughout the rest of the Bible, what were uh, Christians called? Well, they were called disciples, saints, believers, brothers, witnesses. But here in Antioch, they're called Christians. Why? There's debate on uh, how we answer this question, but based on my research, I believe um, it came from, in that culture, followers of Caesar. It's a long Greek word, but I'll put it in English. It's gonna sound weird. Caesarians, Caesarians. And so they saw these Christians who were modeling the same devotion and allegiance uh, to Caesar, and they were calling them Christians for the same devotion and, and care and love and how they reacted. And it was a group of them that were making a, a, a huge splash in their culture. The question becomes, do we reflect that same zeal for Christ today? Do we as a church, do we as individuals who make up of this church, do we reflect the same zeal as these early Christians do? Do we look for opportunities with the people that God has around us to love them? Because guess what? The people most closest to you are gonna be the hardest ones to love, and God's got you there for a reason. You're in the job that you're in. You were in Jacksonville in 2022. You are doing the things that God has called you to because he's got you there to love other people for a reason. Oz Guinness has this famous quote. He says, the problem with Christians in America is not that Christians aren't where they should be. The problem is that they're not what they should be right where they are. They're not what they should be right where they are. Is this true of you? 
Have you forgotten that your identity is in Christ? Has the world pressed in on you so much that you forgot your first love as a Christian and to make Christ known wherever you are? Not in an obnoxious way, not in a Bible-bashing way, but being a sweet presence for the Lord where you are. And when people ask you, what's different about you, you have a reasonable defense for your faith. You have a reason for why you act and do and speak and care for people the way you do. Is this true of you? Are you disgruntled with being in Jacksonville in 2022? Do you wish you were somewhere else? Do you wish you could be at a better job and chase something else or chase something where the grass is always greener? I would encourage you to start watering your own grass. And we do that by getting in God's word. I pray that you would ask God to remind you why you're in Jacksonville, why you're in this church in 2022, why God has made you the way that he's made you because he made you for a purpose and you are special and you are here for a reason. I encourage you to get in the word and find out what God has for you. A 2020 study showed that 78% of Protestant churchgoers do not read their Bible personally daily. As your pastor, this hits me as well. It's very easy to be in the work of ministry and to always read the Bible to help someone else. It's very, I experience the same, the same time constraints, the same frustrations, the same, man, I just don't feel like reading today. I feel that too. And if I feel that, I write these sermons for myself and pray that y'all can eat off of this material. And I know if I feel it, some of y'all have got to feel this too. You see, how do we know what God's got planned for East? How do we know what God's got planned for our own lives? I know it's challenging to carve out quiet times, but I'm right here with you encouraging us all to do that because we can't know what God's got planned for our lives. We can't know what God's got planned for our church in Jacksonville. We can't know what God's got planned for us and simultaneously be biblically illiterate. I know that sounds harsh. I'm not trying to be. But think about this. We can pray all we want to. God, show me your will. Show me what you want us to do. Show me this. Show me this. That's great. I'm not saying don't do that. Do that. But what is prayer? Prayer is a one-way conversation to you and God. How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through his word. This is the way God talks to us. So how in the world can we know what God's got planned for our lives and our futures and our churches and our marriages and children and our vocations? How can we know any of this if we never open the Bible and let God speak to us? You can find him in nature. You can go see him at the beach. But God's special, saving, changing, regenerative, uh, life-giving communication to us is found right here. You might say, Matt, this sounds like a super corny um, 2022 resolution sermon. It's not. It might be corny, but this is a call to revival, y'all. This is a call to revival. 78% of church-going Protestants aren't reading their Bibles. Y'all, let that not be true of us. I do pray that this year we would pray to God to, to bring us back to the joy of our salvation, to give us a hunger for his word. We're not gonna be able to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and just desire his word. We need to pray for God to give us a hunger for his word. 
Pray for God to give us a hunger for his word. Pray that when we open the word, that God would speak to us in it. Y'all need more than just me and Keith talking to y'all. God help you if we're the only people telling you about this stuff, because I'm a mess. I'm 50% right on the best day, right? Y'all need more witness. Y'all need God's word. God's word's going to heal you. It's going to change you. It's going to equip you. It is going to be everything for you that everything in this world promises to give but fails to live up to. I pray that the result of this would not be a bunch of high and mighty Christians who know a lot of Bible and don't know good theology. I pray that we would be a church that knows the Bible, loves Jesus, and we're constantly reminded that we're beggars telling other beggars where we have found bread. I pray that we will be a church for the next 11 years that's unified, that's messy, but loved and is loving others well. I pray that that's us. And I believe we're on that, we're on that trajectory. Praise God. So what keeps a church Christ-centered? First, it's knowing Jesus, but secondly, it's sharing Jesus. And we see this from verses 29 through 30. It says, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Well, what's taking place here is a man from Jerusalem uh, came and prophesied that there was gonna be this massive famine. All right, and famines hit poor populations extremely hard. The more wealthy people could put back and store up food for famines and things like this, the poor uh, were drastically affected. So in Judea, in that region, there was a lot of poor churches. This church here in Antioch was made up of uh, some very, very wealthy people. So uh, hearing that there was a famine in the land, they determined that we're gonna help out. I don't even know them. I don't even know what they've got going on, but they're in Christ. They have a need, and I'm going to help them. They were open-handed with their gifts. And this helps us to put more meat onto what a Christ-centered church looks like. Not only is their identity shaped by what Christ has done for them, but they have an open hand with all of their gifts. And in this case, it was with their money. Now, in America, we see that just churches are generous. Uh, statistics show that uh, churches in America, no matter what denomination, they are very, very generous with worldwide relief, with help in America. Churches are generous. And it's not shocking for us to want to help others that are in need, even if we don't know them. But in the first century, it was unheard of for people of different cultures and backgrounds and belief systems to help other people, particularly when you didn't see them. This church, however, they knew that they had brothers and sisters in need, and they willingly, open-handedly sent relief to them from Barnabas and Saul. They didn't know them their identity was connected in Christ. They were brothers and sisters. It reminds me of a story from missionary Hayiko Oberman. He tells a story about how he took a team with him and went to China, and they were visiting uh, all these rural churches that meet all over China. China's got a massive Christian population. It is booming. And he was sharing as they were going to these churches, they stopped at one. It was a church of about 900 poor farmers. And they were there, they were sharing one of the missionaries on their team was Miss Chang, and this church found out that uh, she was not far from Nanjing where they were. She was born and raised. So they said, give us a word, Miss Chang. So uh, she comes up. She tells them about what's going on in her church in LA, how there's people coming to the Lord, how they're doing a building project, how they're running out of seats, how the Lord is moving in their lives. 
She gave them some encouragement, sat back down. Well, after the service, the pastor calls her back up to the stage, not knowing what it's about, and he told her that they were, the church was so moved by what God was doing in L.A. that they took up all of their offering from that day and were going to give it to her to help with the building construction in L.A. Their total morning offering was $140, $140. You can have some mimosas and some eggs benedict and parking and be out $140 in LA real quick. But out of their love for this church, out of their love for what Christ is doing, they gave everything, and that's beautiful. And this is what being a Christ-centered church is all about. You see, if Jesus is your primary identity, you understand what he did to bring you into salvation. You understand how he left a throne in heaven surrounded by the Father and the Spirit. He left that glory to be born amongst animals, to be born amongst animals, to bring us who are spiritually dead, spitting at the cross, to bring us into a right relationship with him not only to bring us into relationship with him, but to bless us immeasurably with more than what any money can ever buy this side of heaven. Peace, contentment, love, joy, kindness, forgiveness, peace with God, eternal security, the forgiveness of sins, your shame being covered over and borne by Christ himself, you see, if your identity understands what Christ went through to save you, it helps you to open up your hands this side of heaven and we're generous and we're giving and we're loving, not just with money, but look at their talents as well. Look at chapters uh, three, verses two and three. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So as they were worshiping, the Holy Spirit told them to set apart Barnabas and Saul to go plant more churches. So not only were they generous with their finances, but they were generous with the people in their church. They were generous with their gifts. They were generous with their teachers. Think about this. The founding pastors of this church are being called to plant churches somewhere else. And there's hundreds and hundreds of Christians that need to be cared for. But what did these church members do? They sent them off gladly. They didn't cling to them as their only hope. They trusted in the hand of God because they were first and primarily Christians. They were not Barnabians. I know that's not a word. Uh, they were not Saulians. They were Christians. They trusted God's hand to move in their lives. They trusted the leadership that God had left for them. And not only were they trusting in the leaders, but they were all using their gifts inside the church as well. Just two men are not gonna bring hundreds and hundreds and hundreds to the church. The church was using their gifts where they were, sharing it and bringing them in, and then they were being taught by their teachers. You'll notice this resembles a little bit of what we do at East. It's very much so. This is East is right out of their playbook. We're taught, we're led by a multitude of elders, right? We bring, we, we do evangelism, we do outreach events. We encourage y'all to live your faith in your homes, to invite people to eat at your homes so they'll eat at Christ's table one day. 
Not only that, but we do community groups in our homes where we study the Bible and we eat together. The model, the secret sauce is we're just following their plan, trusting in the hand of the Lord to do beautiful things. If y'all are here to be entertained by me and Keith, y'all are in the wrong spot. We're not entertaining. I'm barely good at stringing sentences together to keep y'all from going to sleep, right? It's not our job to entertain y'all. It's not y'all's job to be entertained. We're assembled and gathered by God to reach this city together with our finances, with our gifts, with the way God's connected you and created you. Is this the vision y'all have for your lives? Life is short. Life is fast. There's always distractions. There's always something else to do. There's always something else vying for our time and attention. Is this the vision you'll have for your lives? To be open-handed with not only your gifts, but with your talents, with the way God's created you. Are you using your gifts inside of the church and, and giving and joining the mission that we have here? We can't do this alone. This isn't a place where you might be saying, yeah, I'm giving and you two dummies, y'all go and do all the ministry. That's not the case. We can't do this without you. Y'all are in a bad spot if y'all are depending on me and Keith to reach y'all's neighbors. I'm not that fun to be around. I, I'm just not. Um, we need y'all to use y'all's gifts. We need y'all to partner with us. This is a group effort. God just shows off his sense of humor by using someone like me to equip y'all. Right? I'm the last person that should be up here. If this isn't the vision that you have for your life, by being singularly sold out to Christ as your identity, to using everything in your life to bring glory to him, to seeing everyone around you as an opportunity to serve and to love and to point them to Christ, if that's not your identity, I pray that you would join me in praying for that revival of our hearts, of our spirits, of of this church. I pray that you would seek the Lord and ask him to move by his hand in your life and to grant you the desire to advance the gospel and his fame with everything God's given you. Michelangelo's final work, wait, before I mention this, do we have any native speaking Italians in the room? I've been really working on my Italian pronunciation because y'all know I'm real good with words. Michelangelo's work, I'm about to do it in Italian. Here we go. It was called... The Rondadini Pieta. Nailed it. Nailed it. He worked on this block for 10 years. It was, a, it was a block sculpture. He worked on this thing for 10 years. 10 years and then finally gave up. One of his uh, students mentioned that this rock was so full of impurities and it was so uh, dense and hard that it would just chew up Michelangelo's chisels. Chisels were not cheap, would chew up his chisels. Sparks would fly. Frustration and anger would be just the theme of working on this piece of stone. And for 10 years, Michelangelo labored at this thing. Finally, he gave up, threw the towel in, said, I'm done with it. Said, I'm done with it. The same is true for every single one of us. We all come into this world as small, very cute, but very inwardly stony people hardened by sin. And the older we get, you can become more and more uh, cultured, I'll say, with your sin. You can become more and more sophisticated with your sin. Your heart can grow harder and harder. 
But the good news of Jesus is that God's word goes forth, it accomplishes what it pleases. And there comes a point in your life where you hear about Jesus, you attend a service, youth camp, whatever the case may be, you hear about Jesus and through faith you accept him. And what happens is the Holy Spirit starts to chisel away at all of those rough spots in your heart. And over time, through faith, through repentance, through being in community, through being in God's word, over the years, you slowly and slowly start to look more and more like Jesus. That's a good thing. You're a work in progress. But on the other side, you can come to church for 30 years and you can hear the gospel. You can even take communion. You can have a valid profession of faith and you can still be very stony on the inside. Here's the difference. Faith is what separates uh, a malleable heart versus a heart of stone. If you have faith in Jesus, faith of a mustard seed, Jesus promises that he will complete the work that he started in you. He will not abandon you like Michelangelo did with the Pieta. No matter your, your impurities, no matter how stubborn you are, no matter how much you fight against God's grace, if you are in Christ, you are a work in progress and you will be brought to completion. God will not abandon you. He will be with you. He will fight for you and he will not give up on you. The question is, as you continue to grow in Christ, what are those hard parts in your life that still exist? Are you withholding forgiveness from somebody? Are you holding a grudge? Are you, are you a, a regular complainer? A complainer? Are you regularly cynical? Do you refuse to use your gifts inside the church? Do you refuse to give? Do you refuse to make God uh, primary in your life? Do you have some off-limits parts of your life? Well, yeah, I'm gonna give all this to Jesus, but he's not gonna have this manageable addiction. I'm not gonna give up that relationship. I'm not gonna give up that video game. I'm not gonna give up whatever the case may be. What are those stony parts in your life? Because we all have them. I pray that as we grow as a church in 2022, that we would pray those vulnerable prayers. God, not only reveal to me the hard parts in my heart that you're working on right now, not only reveal them to me, but Father, chisel them away from me. Whatever the case or cost may be, chisel that away from my heart because I want to look like you. Please know that if you're in Christ, you'll never be turned over. God will never give up chiseling away at your hard parts. He'll never do it. He's with you, he loves you, and he cares for you. And sometimes even when you feel like it's most painful and most hurtful, God might be doing his greatest work in you. So church, how do we stay Christ-centered in 2022? We know Jesus in his word and we share Jesus. Let's commit to doing that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness and grace. Thank you for uh, not giving up on your church. Lord, I speak for myself. I am a stubborn mule of a block with tons of impurities. Uh, but Lord, uh, you are ever seeking me. Uh, Father, I run like a, a junkyard dog who just got out of the house. Uh, run down and I tear up the neighbor's yard. Lord, you pursue me. You do not give up on me. Uh, and I praise you for that. Lord, I pray that we would be a church who knows the great lengths that you went through to save us and to secure our faith in you. 
I pray, Lord, for those who are going through a painful chiseling process that you would give them a hope, that you would give them peace, knowing that, Lord, all things work together for our good and for your glory. Uh, and a lot of times in the middle of the chiseling process, we can't see what's happening, but uh, looking back uh, over the years, we can see your hand of providence and your hand of change in our lives. So Lord, would you do a work in us? We pray, Lord, even as a church, that you would reveal to us our blind spots, that you would reveal to us in ways in which we're not doing the work that you've called us to. Would you reveal that to us as a church, as our leadership, as the pastors, Lord, would you reveal that to us? Father, we pray for your hand to move in our lives, in a church, that we are a force of light for the gospel in Jacksonville for decades to come. Jesus, help us do this. In your name we pray, amen.